0: Hello, and for this special episode of the podcast, Jimmy and I are joined by a man who has overseen three different managerial appointments at Preston North End, a promotion back to the Championship, and our highest place finish in the league since 2009. Peter Ridsdale, welcome to From the Finish.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you very much for coming on. Glad to finally get it over the the line, so to speak. I know I've been nagging you for a while, but...
1: You definitely
0: have. Yeah. At worst, you're just going to ignore me or say no, so... Here we well, are. I haven't
1: done now, have I? Here I am.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. so I think we'll just, we'll just start with just a little bit about how you came to sort of getting the job at North End and how all that came about.
1: Um, well, when I left Cardiff in 2010 after selling the football club to Vincent Tan, I obviously lived in the northwest of England and I contacted Trevor Hemmings, who just bought Preston North End, and said um, I was available, I'd quite like to join the club if there was a vacancy. He said he'd just hired a new chairman, Maurice Lindsay, and if the situation changed, he'd uh, give me a shout. Um, I went to watch a game against Portsmouth, I think it was a second home game, and I said to him, uh, I thought you'd get relegated. He said, we've already played two games, I can't believe you've said that. Um, at Christmas, I wrote to him and said, you're bottom of the table, I'm still around, if you fancy giving me a job. And he said, no, we're just about to change the manager, we'll be fine. And then that summer, you got relegated. In the autumn, he was doing a piece in the, uh, Evening Post, I think, saying he bought the club and it was hemorrhaging cash and you know maybe he should be having second thoughts. And I was then working for the administrator at Prima Fargal. We'd just found a buyer, uh, would save the club. Um, so having read the piece he'd written, I wrote to him again. He said, "I think you'd better come and talk to me." So I did, and he offered me the job. Fair enough.
0: There's um, some similarities in that to getting you on the podcast tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what's your relationship like with Trevor?
1: Um, it's very good. Look, um, I admire him. He's a self-made man who's made a lot of money. Uh, he's a hard taskmaster, but I think he recognises I work hard as well. I put a lot of hours in I um, rarely take days off. And if the players are in, I'm in, including Christmas Day. Um, and I think we've got uh, a mutual understanding of our work ethic, um, I think he's much misunderstood. I think he's done a a great job in terms of the money he's put into the football club um, and the stability he's provided. And I think what he's done is uh, accept that I've got a lot of experience in football, but ultimately he makes all the decisions. So I know a lot of people don't believe that, but every player we're going to sign, he signs it off. If we're trying to buy a player, he signs off the uh, potential transfer fee. Um, He's intimately involved and he loves the football club and he's very proud of what we've achieved.
0: Yeah, I think that's a little bit of a misconception that some people have about Trevor, is that he's not that bothered about the football club, but I think hearing you say that, I think just shows that he is.
1: He speaks to me, uh, it varies on a day-to-day basis, but if I say majority of days, seven times a day, and that includes a weekend, he's um, the first one to call me on a Sunday morning, he allows me a slight lie-in, it's normally about eight o'clock rather than seven during the week. Um and he he loves the football club. He's absolutely passionate about it. Um, he watches every game. If he's not there, he watches it on iFollow. Um, and um, he's got uh, his own views on every one of our players, which sometimes agree with those that we have, and sometimes they don't. But anybody who thinks he's disinterested, it couldn't be further from the truth.
0: Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll start then when when you came in. Um, obviously, I think it was about ten or eleven days into your time at the club um you you let Phil Brown go was that was that your decision? was that from Trevor or
1: no, the decision had already been taken before I arrived but oh, um, right. okay I think that um uh, it was felt that if I communicated the decision it um uh, gave some clarity as to the fact I was here and some of the things I was here to do and achieve yeah. um so you know I'm not sufficiently knee jerk that I make a decision after. 10 or 11 days, Um, and we believed it was right for the club at the time. Obviously, Phil had been in um, uh, for, I don't know, six months before we got relegated. And then at the time I came in, uh, I happened to go and watch us play at Hartlepool the week before I arrived. I'd just been offered the job, but it wasn't known at the time. We won 1-0. But up to that point, I think we've gone to like 13 games without a win uh, in League One. So clearly the alarm bells were ringing, and I think it was time for a change.
2: Neil yeah, Mallory scored that night, as I remember the game. It was, um, about
1: eight minutes in or something, and Stuckey yeah. had a, a wordy that night. Yeah, he did. Um,
0: yeah, then then came along uh, Mr. Wesley. How, how did that come
1: about? Well, it's interesting looking back, because uh, clearly it was known that we had a vacancy. We'd got uh, Graham and um, David Unsworth, joint caretaker managers at the time, and um, the list of people who'd expressed an interest in the job was uh, perhaps not as um, not as exciting as perhaps it has been since then when we've changed manager. And um, uh, Graeme had, with not a lot of money, taken Stevenage from non-league to uh, obviously League One. At the time, I think they were sitting in the playoff places. Um, and of all those people we interviewed, he stood out as different. He was somebody who... Could take all the challenges that we thought we needed, because we had some big personalities in the dressing room we still had some major overheads that frankly were um, championship wages in league one that we couldn 't really afford um, and we all thought at the time it was a risk worth taking versus the alternative candidates right. um, obviously it was a an interesting period of, of time trying to manage with Graham. I still like him a lot um, I think it was an appointment that clearly. Um, uh, could have only lasted a certain period of time because um, I think that Graham probably found that step up uh, just a bit too much in terms of his management style and some of the people that we were likely to recruit and want to work for him. Having said that, I think he did a job that was needed because I do think that we had some big personalities. I think a lot of people needed sorting in terms of changing and I think he did a job that's underestimated at the time and in fact, some of the players he brought in People forget, you know, Deck, who was still with us, Paul Huntington, who's was still with us, John Welsh, who did a job, some of the players who were there when we got promoted in uh, Jack King and uh, Scott Laird. Um, so, you know, it, it's a lot of people look back on his time and are very critical. But actually, there are a lot of very good points of, of Graham's time with us. Um, but I think that uh, it lasted as long as it could have done, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. So I think... A lot
0: of fans talk about, oh, he was brought in to do a job. I don't think, from what you've said, that is the case. He was brought in.
1: Um, I think, benefit of hindsight, we were saying that, but at the time, we thought it was the right appointment and um, circumstances dictated we needed to make a change.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Why Oval? Why Oval away to to drop the axe, so to speak?
1: Uh, If I'm perfectly honest, uh, we normally like and we we didn't when Phil went but we normally like to know what we're going to do next if something's going to happen and certainly if we're going to initiate it so clearly um, I knew what we were going to do next. i would known Simon Grayson since um, he was uh, a young lad at Leeds when I first became a director and uh, I was aware of Simon's uh, availability or impending availability and therefore uh, the timing was to do with a smooth change or something else.
0: Right, OK. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense.
2: Do you think he was the perfect fit for us, Peter? Because obviously you've known him a while and obviously known him since he was a young lad. Do you think he was the perfect fit for the football club? Oh,
1: you're talking about Simon, presumably?
2: Yeah, Simon, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, look, what we did, we sat down and said, what's the criteria? And the criteria is we had to get back to the championship as soon as we could. As a football club, we felt being League One was... Uh, not right for our overhead structure and the size of the club, the history and our ambition. Um, and the one thing we needed was a manager who got clubs promoted out of League One. And yeah. Simon's CV is as good as anybody's. Um, you know, he'd obviously taken Blackpool out of League One, Leeds United out of League One, Huddersfield Town out of League One, and subsequently he took us out of League One. So um, it was a perfect fit in the sense his CV was a great match for that. You know, what we wanted. Um, and um, I think that... His time with the club was a good time. You know, he he took us into the the playoffs, I think, in his first full season um, and then obviously got us promoted. Um, And he left of his own accord because he felt that the opportunity at Sunderland was a big one and too good to turn down. I did suggest to him that I thought it was probably a step too far and I thought it was the wrong move. But I acknowledged that if he wanted to go, he should go.
0: How did you feel about it it when it all happened in the end?
1: Um, Well, look, I've got a lot of experience in football and I've got a lot of connections in football. So, albeit it was a surprise in the sense that the first time he told me was the day he left, Uh, I'd got enough contacts in football to know exactly what was happening at Sunderland. There were potential takeovers going on at the time. I think there was a German suitor who was supposedly going to take over. And had he succeeded, it was clear to me from my contacts that Simon wouldn't have got the job. But I was also told that, uh, if he didn't succeed, Simon had already been offered the job, even though officially I didn't know. So yeah. it wasn't a surprise to me, albeit officially it was.
2: Yeah. It was the first day of pre-season, wasn't it? So I suppose how how did that feel for you? Because from what I understand, is it was yourself who broke it to the players that day in terms of obviously the guys that are training around finding out. So I suppose how did you manage those emotions as well for the the lads coming back in first day after the holidays and all of a sudden the the gaffer's
1: gone? Um, Well, it was a weird one because I'd flown back from holiday the day before and in fact I bumped into Steve Thompson at the airport um, before we flew back from from Malaga. And uh, I said to Steve, come on, you can tell me what's happening. And he said, I genuinely have no idea. So, I wasn't quite sure whether my information that I'd been given was correct or not. Um, so, I met Simon first thing that morning, and clearly it was the first thing he told me. Um, so, whilst I'd been anticipating it, I probably didn't expect it that morning. Um, and of course, we just signed a number of players, including Josh Harrop, De- Declan Rudd. And um, I had to then go down the training ground and say, Look, I know you're expecting the manager here to welcome you back, but regrettably, he's gone. Um, and you just looked at some of the faces of some of the players um and uh it was one of those days when you think well i've got to front it up but it's the last thing i want to do this morning Uh, but i did front it up and i think that was the thursday morning and uh, i think alex had been interviewed by mr Hemmings and i on the monday morning uh, and appointed on the tuesday so it was a smooth transition again but yeah it was um one of those days you don't plan for but you just have to get through
0: what was it that
1: stood out about alex um, well, if you if you think what I've just said about why did we hire Simon, and uh, that is because he'd got on his CV, he'd taken a club out of league, or a number of clubs out of league one to the Championship. Um, our next ambition is to get in the Premier League, so I wanted to have a look at a manager that was potentially available, um, that had taken a team out of the Championship to the Premier League. Alex had done that with Norwich City, he was available, um, although... At the time, I thought he was more freely available than he was. There was still an outstanding compensation clause with Norwich City, which precluded him working till I think it was the September. And to the credit of Delia, who I've known for many years, she was outstanding. She waived that payment uh, to allow him to start with us. So um, it was a bit of a shock once we offered Alex the job that he broke to us, the, the news that he had this clause um but i say to delia's credit she was outstanding and she she waved it that's great that yeah it
2: was very. that's good. something that i've never heard either you know i think it's it's those little snippets that people don't understand especially when you're appointing a manager that you know from the outside in as a fan you're thinking ah, oh, great we've got a, a manager that's that's got no contract He's if it's freely available but i think it's similar to is it pochettino at the moment that from spurs it's he's not been allowed to join another Premier League club because of a clause in his contract. So Exactly. It's, um, well, it's always interesting.
1: I mean, yeah, it's one of those strange things because um, you know some clubs, when they part with a manager, for whatever reason, insert uh, clauses which preclude them working elsewhere. I think that's a bit off because if you decide to let the manager go, it seems a bit perverse. You then say, by the way, you can't work anywhere else in the meantime or yeah, for a period yeah. of time. Um, But it is more uh, common than you you would think. And um, um, I suppose it was the timing that Alex chose to tell me. He waited till we'd offered them a job before he told me. (laughs) I probably think he might put us off, you know. Um, uh, I I knew Alex a little bit. Uh, Obviously, I knew him through football and I bumped into him when... Uh, going to games to scout players. Um, we'd often find ourselves sitting close to each other when he was at Norwich. Um, and for a brief period of time, um, when I uh, was at Barnsley in 2003, I bought Barnsley out of administration for Patrick Krein and sold it on to him. But Alex was a player there. And in right. the first summer that I went in, we actually let him go as a player. So um, I had some history with Alex, but um, I didn't know him very well, but obviously I just knew him through football.
0: Small hell yeah. isn 't
1: it it is, yeah. It is when you've been in football for 33 years. You, you end up getting to know a lot of people and meeting other people. So what, what's,
0: your, what's the relationship like between yourself and Alex?
1: Um, I enjoy working with him very much. I think he's the hardest working manager I've worked with in my career. His attention to detail and tactics are as good as anybody I've met. Um, it's a professional relationship. Um, I think when you've got a situation where you've got a football manager um, you can't get too close you know mm-hmm. I don't go out and socialize with him I don't go out drinking with him but we do spend a lot of time not just during the working day but you, you will have seen over the over the years he's been with us we go to a lot of games together um, if we're scouting a player he always comes with me if we look at the opposition we go together um, so I've enjoyed it as much as I have with any manager I've worked with and I've been lucky to work with some Uh, well-known managers in the past, but he is uh, the most focused, hard-working manager I've worked with in in all my time in football.
0: I think that says a lot. Yeah, so obviously last season was different, I think is probably a a, a nice way of putting it. Um, How how were we as as a club, on and off the pitch from from your point of view, like pre-COVID and post-COVID?
1: Well, I think last season was disappointing because... um, you know, we start the season and the bookies have a sort of coming twentieth in the in the table. We go to Charlton, I can't remember when it was, but in the autumn. Um, yeah, I think it was November, um,
0: wasn't
1: it? Yeah we, yeah, we we went top of the table for twenty four hours, uh, we had, so we had a very good start to the season, unlike the the season before. And I think that when we went into lockdown, um, most of us believed that we would end up with a top six finish, and clearly that was our, our aspiration, albeit. Against the odds, because at a certain start of the season the bookies certainly didn't think we'd get there. Um, so to the degree that we, we up to COVID uh, lockdown, we were doing very well and we in the top six most of the season. Uh, clearly, the last nine games um, were a disappointment, and nobody can hide the fact that um, to then drop out and end up ninth was a very disappointing end of the season. Um, I think it's weird if you actually look at the results when Project Restart came in, um, the bottom teams did extraordinarily well. And it was almost like not having fans there took the pressure away from them. Yeah. And also they changed the way they played. I mean, Luton Town, for example, are a very expansive football side. And yet we went down to Kenilworth Road and they put 11 men behind the ball. They had one shot on target and scored and, and drew one all in a game that anybody watching, it had it been a boxing match, would have won on point. Um, uh, and I think that the not having crowds created different tactics atmospheres and you know you then saw the I say I think all the three clubs at the bottom uh, during lockdown did exceptionally well uh, under project restart so I think last season was um frustrating because I think had we not had the uh, interruption I still believe would have made the top six which is clearly where we want to be um but we didn't so what we have to do is to learn the lessons and dust ourselves down and start all over again. Yeah. How did
2: you find the atmosphere there, Peter? Because obviously you experienced most of the games firsthand in the grounds. How, how did you find the, the games? Because obviously it's unlike anything that we've ever seen before in England from, I suppose, somebody actually being sat in those stands and actually, I suppose, feeling, feeling part of the tension that, that's going through the players at that moment in time.
1: I think it took a while for our players to adjust, to be honest, and uh, certainly sitting in the stands. I mean, the first thing I realised is when I shouted at the players, which I'm apt to do every week, they can hear me, uh, which they (sighs) normally can't. Um, So I had to sort of rein myself in a bit. Um, But uh, there's no doubt it took our players a few games to get into their stride. Mm. Um, I also think the referees reacted differently, to be honest. Um, Mm. If you take the Cardiff City game deep down, I'm absolutely convinced had we had a full crowd with the home support would have got the penalty when Scott Sinclair was brought down. Um, and um, I honestly think those nine games are totally different to had we been normal circumstances from watching it, from playing in it and from the officials officiating it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, we touched a little bit on it, didn't we, in one of the podcasts during like the nine games that, that we anticipated the referees being a, a little bit different and
2: I think they were rusty, personally, yeah. because they, they, they'd had a break as well from not officiating. You could tell they, sure. they didn't feel up to match speed, some of them. But I so. also think
1: that however much, like I'm not a referee, but I think however much that referees will try very hard to say they're not influenced by the crowd, I do think you, your mind is alerted to crowd reaction. Yeah. Um, sometimes that's helpful and sometimes it's not because sometimes you know, crowds can get players sent off or, or whatever it happens to be. But I'm absolutely certain that we didn't get the rub of the green in some of those games where the referees hesitated and didn't give decisions that under normal circumstances they would have given. Um, that's not me bitching and moaning about it. I think it's just a statement of fact and answering the question you've asked. But I yeah. do believe that was the, 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 the case in point.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and no, I, I would agree with that. This is probably one that you've expected then uh, season tickets. In one of the first statements that was released by the club, there was a sentence about rewarding loyal fans. Um, Do you see anything that's been announced thus far as rewarding fans? Um, Obviously, there's the no refund clause, which has been brought time and time again. Um, But what, what in that do you see as rewarding loyal fans for this season, for their support in the past?
1: Well, I think there's a number of factors and, you know, you could take a view on what rewarding actually means. I mean, um, first of all, we obviously are ensuring that our commitment to reward those people who've been ambassadors in the past, our Premier Club members are getting absolute priority um, to uh, reduced capacity. Now, some people may say, well, so what is that really rewarding loyalty? But it is reflecting the fact that our ambassadors and Premier League members uh, have stayed with us. Um, We are saying that we will also ensure that nobody loses out if they don't take a season ticket this year. So if you're an ambassador and you choose not to buy, you won't lose your ambassador status. Um, So rewards are in the eye of the receiver, I suppose, and some people think we haven't. Some people may think we have. The difficulty we're facing, to be honest, and I totally understand our fans' reaction um, to, first of all, the no refunds uh, clause. To be frank, it's been in forever. And it wasn't something we just inserted. Um, uh, and the situation we face at the moment is um, we're going into this coming season trying very hard to keep our squad together in a situation where we've paid our players all the way through and our the HMRC and our creditors. And we're one of a very small number of clubs who've done that. For me to know what we can afford, given the money that we've been given to budget on for the coming season, I need to know how much my season ticket revenue is and it's only going to be based on a maximum probably around 6,500 people and we don't know for how long. So if there is an interruption which would require us to refund, we're going to have to do it in 21-22 at a time when if I know how much that's going to cost me and how much I'm losing for 21-22 season, I can then budget for that next year um, and my wage bill will be determined on how much income I've got. What I don't know today and nobody knows today is are we going to have any disruption at all? So our fans are saying, oh, if there's disruption, it's a disgrace, I won't get my money back. They will, but not immediately. they get it for 21-22 season. Um, but I also hope they understand that our best chance of succeeding this year is me to know how much money I've got. So I know which players I can keep. And therefore it'll give us our best chance as a squad to try and compete in the championship. Um uh, Everybody says, oh, and uh, and I see I've been criticised on Twitter today for commenting on the fact we've got a billionaire owner. Yes, we have. Um, But the owner also says to me at the start of each season, this is how much money I'm prepared to put into the football club because I've got loads of other business interests. And some of those business interests, quite a number of pubs, they've had a horrific time during COVID. A number of hotels, they've had a horrific time during COVID. He's got a holiday camp just outside Cork. They've had no season whatsoever this year. Some of the money that uh, supports us is from some of his investments in other companies, which have also not been paying dividends out. So, you now the stretch on his resources is enormous. What he tries to do, and I think it's the right thing to do, is he says to us, we want you to run it as a business. This is how much money I'll put in each year. You run it then within that, given the income streams from sponsorship, from ticketing, et cetera. Now, what he's had to do this year is actually put his hand in his pocket and probably put three or four million pounds more than he would normally budget to get us through from March the 17th to when we'll have the first trading income from season tickets. Yeah. That's a lot of money when you don't expect to do it. And by the way, it's only from one of his businesses. He's had to do the same with all the other businesses he's got. Um, So, you know, I'm not trying to be flash when I say we've got billionaire only, it's a statement of fact. I'm not trying to be condescending to anybody, which people have criticised me for. I'm generally trying to make sure that when we come out the other end of this, we've got a strong football club, we've got a good squad, and our supporters feel properly and fairly treated, albeit some of that might be deferred or delayed if we get a second spike. Yeah. I mean, look, I recognise and, you know, I've just... just, I, I. normally i don 't get home till about the time we started, so I came home slightly early tonight. I got in about quarter to seven and i 've responded to some emails tonight from people who 've um, uh, been criticizing us on the policy or asking for explanations. I spent all of Sunday responding to emails most of Monday responding to emails um, everybody who 's written to us i 've responded to, uh, and if i haven 't yet, there might be a couple of outstanding um, and i 've tried to explain the policy now. A number of people have said. Um, don't agree with you or whatever, what they can't do is criticise us for not explaining why we've made the decision. A lot of people think, oh, well, it's all right for you. I've had a tough time during the pandemic. I get that. I totally get that. But I've got people 20 miles down the road walking around the streets because we're in administration. We had that two or three years ago with Bolton. We've had it with Berry. We've got it with Charlton. The only thing I hope, and, you know, I've told you earlier in the podcast that I worked the administrator at Plymouth, And the Plymouth fans were there desperately trying to save the club when they got into trouble way back in 2011. The one thing that I think we've got a responsibility for on behalf of all our supporters is keep the club financially healthy. We are probably the most healthy football club in the Championship. And I think that that's a good starting point. And I do apologise, and people say I don't, but I do apologise if any of our supporters feel our policy is Unfair, unreasonable, not treating them properly. In the round, we'll treat them properly. We're doing a number of other things that might come off that might compensate for some of the historic losses of the last uh, last season. But I can't say officially what that is because it's around insurance terms, etc. Yeah. Um, the one thing I get, everybody forgets, I started off in football because I was a supporter of a football club. And I ended up on the board of that football club and then ended up as the chairman of the football club. I go to every game home and away. I go and watch games where I'm not playing. I do understand. But what I can't always do is guarantee that every supporter will be satisfied with their own personal circumstances as well as keeping the club alive. Sometimes those two conflict. But we will do our genuine best in the circumstances to get it more right than wrong. And the only thing I can tell you is we will make mistakes because that's life, but we'll try and get it right more often than not. Yeah. With this statement on
2: Saturday, Peter, that came out, obviously, after the initial reactions to season tickets, I think if a lot of stuff had come out you know, in the wash since Monday, Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and in terms of your interviews, I think people would have been a lot more positive. And I think it would have come out a lot more positively because once you've explained it in the way you have done this week in the media, I think a lot of people have really bought into it. Personally, you know, you have, you have to look at social media and a lot of people that we we all speak to, and the, I wouldn't say everyone's mind's been changed, but I think people are a lot more receptive to what you've said. Obviously, I think Saturday, I don't think it was condescending. I think it just, it it just sort of it felt to me like it got people's backs up a little bit, and I, and I know that was not your intention at all. Obviously, from speaking to you tonight, and obviously hearing you for the past couple of days, but I think, I suppose, from your, your point of view. If a fan is still on the fence about committing at this moment
1: in time, what, what would your message be to them at this moment in time? Well, look, there's two things. First of which, I, m- I made a mistake. The mistake I made is in one of the other comments I made a week before that, I promised we'd get our season ticket uh, policy out by Friday of last week. Yeah. And therefore, I got it out by Friday before I actually did the stuff I should have done before we got it out. Um, and I did that because I'd given a commitment to get it out by Friday. So that's my fault. What I should have done is it the other way around. I should have actually put out all the stuff we've done since then and then put the policy out. So that's my fault. Um, in terms of anybody who's undecided, um, the frustration I've got is, my question is why? Because since March I've had so many people saying to me, we miss football, we miss live football, when can we come back? And the fact is, we're saying you can come back, subject to obviously nothing changed with the government, on the 17th of October. So I would hope that people are excited about that. What they appear to be f- fearful of, and I understand, but I can't do anything about it, is what happens if suddenly there's another lockdown? Yeah. And all we're saying on the no refunds is, for me to keep the team together, for me to keep the club together, we've had no income since March, and from a trading point of view, we've had loads of costs, testing of COVID in Project Restart, cost £48,000. Um, all I'm saying is, if you commit your season ticket money for the 2021 season, and if there is then some disruption, we will then give you a credit in 2022. I can plan for that. What I can't promise to do, and I don't know if it's going to be a one-game loss, a 20-game loss, I don't know what it's going to be. If you commit your money for the coming season, we need to have the certainty of being able to use that to keep our players together and the overheads of the club together. People may not like that, but I'm explaining that's why we're doing it. So that's all I can say. So my view is, if you want to come and watch us, please come and um, and buy the season tickets. We've taken a decision on under-11s, which, to be honest, I've had almost no criticism for, because the risk was we had 25% or more of our capacity available to us being free seats to Mm -hmm. under-11s. And in fact, the other thing that's scary is, because they're free, a lot of people just get them anyway and never use them. So over 50% of the under-11s last year never turned up. So right. what we can't afford from a, a reduced capacity basis is over 25% of the six and a half thousand not being paid for. There was another gentleman who was in the uh, Lancashire Live last Sunday who disappointed me, and I've tried to ring him. I think he tried to ring me back yesterday. He said he called back, but he hasn't. Um, when he said over 50, for first time in 50 years, he's not going to, to renew. If he feels let down by the club because his season ticket price has gone up this year. He happens to be a disabled supporter. We said two years ago that we're the only club in the northwest that gives disabled supporters a free carer and a discount on adult price of over over 60% of the time. So over four years, we would increase it, which this is the second year. But he and his carer are still only paying £7.50 each per match to come and watch us. That's not expensive, whereas all the other clubs charge full price, plus a free carer. And if that had been explained, I think people would have either taken a view on what he said, or if he'd have talked to me, I could have explained his own circumstances. We had somebody else criticise us on Sunday on on, on Twitter and and absolutely lambast me on our, our pricing policy. When I examined his account, he was 17 years old and paying £80 a year to watch 23 home games. That's not expensive. And yet, on Twitter, he doesn't say I'm 17 and I'm paying £80. So... These are the frustrations we face. Those with genuine hardship, et cetera, we totally understand. Crikey, I was out there delivering food hampers during the, the pandemic. I spoke to a number of our supporters who weren't leaving the houses and were scared to leave the houses. A lot of them, obviously, very elderly. I do understand what people are going through. Um, but all I can say is we won't always get it right, but we'll explain what we're doing and we hope people will understand what we're doing.
2: Yeah. yeah. As the club looked at it, Something like a retain your seat mm-hmm. membership for those who can't afford to take the risk potentially are just normal season ticket They don't have to do
1: that. Look, just, some people suggested why don't do they? They don't have to do it because what okay. we've said is we will treat this season as a one off. Okay. So we will, when we're looking at seat allocation for twenty-one twenty-two 21 22 season, we will start with a template from 2019 20. So okay. if you add a season ticket and a seat in the season 2019-20, we will then take that as a starting point when you apply for your season ticket or your seat for 21 22 This is going to be treated as a one-off season. So nobody has to give us a deposit. Nobody has to give us a retainer. The starting point will be you can get your seat back, even if I, you don't come this season.
0: See, that that makes me feel a lot better because that was one of the things that
1: uh,
0: I, I'm not renewing just due to personal circumstances. Um I'll just pay on iFollow as and when, and one
2: of the- until this uh, until, uh, I'll just put in that until hopefully half season tickets are implemented in in December or January or a pro pro rata one when if it goes up to fifty percent capacity because that's your hope, isn't it? I don't want it coming across that you just want to sit on your backside, Jake, all season. So oh
0: yeah, oh, of course. But one <laughs> one of the big things for me for renewing for a full season was the potential of having lost my my seat and sitting where I've sat for the best part of like 15 years. If you
1: have a season season. ticket for 2019-20, the starting point will be be available for 21-22. And and clearly we hope that there's the opportunity for half season tickets because we don't want to go through the season with only 6,500 supporters in the stadium. We've got the second or third lowest turnover in the championship already under normal circumstances. We can't afford to only have 6,500 people in the stadium. But that's what we believe will be around that number. It's not exactly defined yet. And it depends on how many social bubbles there are within the stadium yeah. under the, the applications. So we'd like to welcome you back, at least as a half-season older. But what we're all facing is the unknown. When we went to lockdown, nobody could tell me whether it's going to be a month or six months. We're still here today in September, where we're not back to norm. We don't know when Norm will be. So all we're doing at the moment is trying to put our best sort of crystal ball in our decision-making process and and, um, guess what's right based on your circumstances as a supporter, having been through what you've been through, and ours as a football club needing to make sure we come out the other end strong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just the last one on season tickets, at least for me, Um, is there any reason why there was why the eight or seven midweek away games weren't included as part of it? As maybe it's just like a goodwill gesture or something to those that do renew.
1: Um, not yet, but we are looking at that. Uh, we just didn't want there's so a lot of conversations going on with the football league at the moment, and I in general. Right. Um, and what we didn't want to do is to just again make a de- decision off off the cuff and say right, it's this way or that way. Um, a lot of people have made that comment, and it's something we are looking at. Uh, and we will make a final decision on communication shortly. So it's not a sense, though, and that's all, It's is not a right? sense, though. Right. No. Fair enough.
2: Got a quick question. Go on. I suppose on the back of COVID, Peter, just before we wrap up the COVID, pit, do you think that, I suppose, football in general might have missed a bit of an opportunity to fundamentally change football in England? Because obviously we've seen League One and League Two implement this hard salary cap um, at their levels, which does seem a bit low. I think you mentioned it last night, that it's, it's low for their particular level. Do you think that more needs to be done in the championship to potentially level the playing field, especially with the the money coming down in terms of parachute payments? And I suppose we've been one of I think it's nine clubs this year that has never had a parachute payment, you know, in the championship.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably only four, certainly there's only five who've never been in the Premier League. Um, uh, look, the situation is, um, I will choose my words as carefully as I can, but the reality is that there is not a fair system of um, competing in football in general. Um, I don't know if any of you have read a book that I, I wrote about 10 or 11 years ago, but I tell a story in there when I was trying to get um, a winger from Bolton Wanderers. So I would just become chairman of Leeds, probably still young and naive and he had a three and a half million buyout clause in his contract and Aston Villa wanted him and we wanted him at Leeds. So I phoned Doug Ellis and I said, look, why don't we just both offer three and a half million? That's the clause. And let the player go where he wants to go. So he said, absolutely, 100%. That's fine, Peter. So I bid three and a half million. And the following day, he bid 4.25 million. And I phoned him and said, what the hell's going on? He said, the first lesson in football, I don't trust anybody. And the real reality in football is there isn't such a thing as a level playing field. And um, you've seen on financial fair play, It's in there and we all think it's great, isn't it? And then for good or ill, whether they're found guilty or not guilty, there are a number of football clubs out there who will find any method they can, if they can afford it, to try and get around the rules. I'm against salary caps in principle because I think that what we should do is what we do, and that's if we can't afford a player, we say no. And I think that's good management. I think the danger in salary caps is that you know, if you're looking for future owners and you find somebody rich enough um, in any football club, um, if they want to buy a train set, they want to actually be able to buy the train as well. And if you suddenly have salary caps that paid for the club, but they're not allowed to buy the players they want to compete. Well, then it dis- distracts people or detracts people, sorry, from wanting to invest in the football club in the first place. And I think that's a danger. So um i also think if you're not careful i think that's what's happening in league one and two you actually drag everybody down to the lowest common denominator how can it be right that sunderland who've got 35,000 or so supporters are restricted to a two and a half million wage cap it's probably going to be the most profitable football club in the league but that's not to the betterment of the supporters um so i'm against them in principle um uh, i don't think it Creates fairness or living playing fields. What I do think would create more fair um, football uh, across the whole pyramid, and this is where the FA and the government I think need to step in. It can't be right that the Premier League, if you're bottom of the table, get a hundred million pounds plus two more years of parachute payments of at least seventy-seven million over two years. That's one hundred and seventy-seven million pounds, and we get seven, and they get even less in League One and League Two, and if people really care about the financial um, uh, vibrancy of football across the 92 clubs, there would be pressure to um, push more money down from the Premier League. And if you did that, you could do, do away with the parachute payments. So if what we call is the cliff edge between getting relegated from the Premier League, go from 100 million a year to seven, albeit with parachute payments, if you gave less money to the Premier League clubs at the bottom end, um, and mm-hmm. more money throughout the rest of the 72 clubs. The cliff edge will be less. You wouldn't need parachute payments, and the whole pyramid could be more vibrant and more stable. But at the moment, you've got the Premier League have done an outstanding job of, of being a marketing organisation, one of the best. But what they've done is take themselves way ahead of the rest of the Football League. Yeah. No,
2: definitely. Yeah. Time <laughs> with that. Um, just a quick one, last last one on sort of post COVID. Do you feel let down at all by the EFL or higher bodies that clubs who've deferred salaries or HMRC payments are now making signings despite obviously significant liabilities to their players and staff? Because I think we're the only club out of the 16. Clubs that remain in the championship from last season that haven't made a signing of eighteen clubs in the championship, and I think that's something that a couple of fans have commented on Twitter and the likes. Of, but do you feel that I suppose if they had paid their players in full, or like like we have done, that we might be able to compete for some of the players that they may have already signed.
1: I think it's two answers to what you just said. The, the latter part will come onto, but the first part is I think it is totally unacceptable that clubs who have not been able to honour the contractual commitments by having to defer wages or force wage cuts and haven't paid the revenue during the period of COVID and have still therefore got a ticking time bomb of debt throughout their signing players. I think that's wholly unacceptable. I've told the Football League that the reason the Football League, whether they agree or disagree, can't do much about it is there are so many of them, they can't get a vote through to satisfy where we would want to be because you need 16 votes to get anything through. Um, So I've raised it. They claim they're sympathetic with us, but they can't do anything about it because it's a democratic structure. Um, Morally, I can't see how you can justify it. Because what we have said to our players is, when we entered a contract with you, we said we'd pay you. And our owner on day one of the pandemic said, tell the players... However long it lasts, I'm going to pay the contracts we've agreed to sign because that's who I am and that's who Preston North End are. Those clubs that haven't, it's up to them. But how they can then be going out, adding to their overheads or competing in the transfer market is beyond me. I just don't get it. In terms of whether or not that would have helped us compete more, I think what you need to have a look at as well is, I understand there's great excitement when you go out and start signing new players and fresh faces and people love it. The fact of the matter is the first thing we've tried to do, because we think we've got a good squad and we think last year we probably should have done better, is to retain what we've got. We then got faced with a 25-man squad cap and um, as of a week ago, we had 26. Um, As of yesterday, we had 25 because Josh went to, to Hearts. And uh, we've made it clear publicly that um, we've said to David Nugent he's allowed to go somewhere else he can find another club, which would bring us down to 24. So it would create an opportunity for further striker if we could find him at the right price. Um, so um, it's not so much we haven't competed because we've paid our bills and they haven't. Um, uh, there are a number of factors as to whether we could have, couldn't have competed. What is absolutely certain is even if it had wanted to sort of freshen up the squad and not saying we did, there is no market for our players to go somewhere else. Um, because what's happened this summer is the, the market is as stagnant as I've seen it. There's only a small number of clubs who are actually spending money. They've either got the parachute payment or they've sold players and they're recycling the cash. But a lot of clubs haven't been able to do Or in the case of at least one club who did fall foul of financial fair play, They've got so many players out of contracts. They had to top up to get to a minimum number of players in the first place. So the dynamics are all over the place. Um, Let's go back to your original question. It ain't fair, but it never will be. And it never has been. And in the future, whatever you do, it won't be either.
0: Fair enough. Can't say fairer than that, really. Um, So the training ground then, obviously you've mentioned that it was an opportunity that presented itself. How do you see that sort of helping the club progress?
1: Well, if you actually take, I, I tell a story in in I can't remember, it was 2007, I think it was. I signed Robbie Fowler at Cardiff, having previously had him at Leeds. And the one thing I didn't dare do is take him anywhere near Ninian Park or our training ground, because at the time the players were using porter cabins to change him. And the first day of training, I met Robbie, and he said, "If you'd show me this before, I want to sign for you." Because the fact of the matter is, the players, the stadium can be as good as you want, and ours is magnificent. But from six days a week, the players are actually at the training ground, not the stadium. So that's their normal working environment. And whilst the pictures at Springfields have been improved over the years, the facilities there are not uh, complementary to a championship club that aspires to be in the Premier League. We made that clear a few years ago with the application at Ingle. um, And one of the disappointments there was the housing development that was due to help pay for The training facilities, Um, because of all the Section 106 requirements, was going to take about nine years before we saw all the 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 money flowing through from the housing. Um, Four years ago, we made a bid for Bolton's training ground at Exton. When they went into administration, we were outbid by Wigan. So um, a few months ago, we made an application to improve Springfield's, at least to give us an interim solution. Um, I then got a phone call. Two weeks ago uh, on Tuesday, so 16 days ago, uh, which because we'd inquired when Wigan went into administration, we inquired about the availability of Exeter and were told it wasn't for sale. I got a phone call 16 days ago which said, If you bid the following and complete within two weeks, because we need the cash to keep the club alive, we'll sell it to you. And to be frank, whilst I'm not supposed to say publicly the purchase price, it was substantially less than the upgrade cost of Springfields, never mind Ingle. Um, and Springfields would have only upgraded one building, never mind pictures or everything else. We've inherited a training facility now, or we've bought a training facility now, which cost around £10 million, um, with the pictures and the buildings and all the equipment inside it for a snip. And uh, certainly I've taken Alex and the backroom staff around it few of our staff have seen it and they are visibly excited by walking around it. And this is before we paint and decorate and what we're doing at the moment. Um, if we want to attract players, they want to do a number of things. They want to see the stadium, they want to know our ambition, they want to see who the manager is, but they want to see where they're going to work Monday to Friday. And Springfield wasn't the best advert for that. So I think it's an absolutely fantastic investment by the owner I think we will benefit from it as a football club and I think we'll benefit for it for proof of signings in the future. Yeah.
2: Just on that, because obviously when Ingle got announced, I was reading a couple of Alex Neil's first interviews and he mentioned about the Ingle development being one of the... Key things that attracted him to the club, you know, to be a part of something that's that exciting. I think it was a £14 million investment in Ingle originally in, in terms of the plans. And obviously the plans were to go in there in August 2018, it, you know, in the initial statements. what? Why did that not happen just from, I suppose, your point of view? Because the, the housing development, I, I think it had been quite difficult to build 450 houses in the space of 15 months from February 2017 for it getting announced to. August 2018, when the original moving in date was, um, I suppose. Why do you feel that we we never got into Ingle?
1: Well, look. The the fact is, when we first applied for it, and we applied in the December, I think I've lost track of whether Alex had just arrived or whether it was December before he arrived. Um, But we put our plans in the December, um, and you will know we got a lot of opposition to the plans um initially the housing development was turned down albeit the training ground was approved and then a couple of months later the housing development was approved um but with very substantial breaks on the return on cash uh, some of it based on when the m55 link road was going to be finished some of it was based on how many houses a year we could build it's not just when you finish building them, it's when you can actually sell the contracts to a builder to know we can build it um, and therefore, um, the cash flow that we hoped we might get and the visibility on the cash, the timing changed drastically and was put back to our disappointment. So we held our nerve and we stopped, uh, stood one step back and thought, well, what should we do? And then we thought, well, if we did an upgrade on Springfield, at least it will do something. Then England, uh, the uh, excellence come along. Um, the strategy originally, I mean, I remember the first day Mr. Amish took me to England and said, what do you thinking? It was a golf course. It's oh, fine. Why And he says I want to build a training ground here. And those people who doubt it, he absolutely took me and said, this is going to be our new training ground. And he was excited by it. I've got to be careful to say, because I don't want to criticize you know, any, anybody, particularly in terms of local authorities, etc. cetera. All I can say is, I've been here for well a long time. When we needed a new training facility at Leeds, at Thorpe Arch, the council bent over backwards to find the right land. And, Persuade us to go there. When I was at Cardiff, they built a magnificent new stadium, but we only did it on the back of having a retail development on land that was gifted by the council uh, in exchange for us building um, an athletic stadium. Uh, so there's over 40 acres that of that site at Cardiff. I'm told that Blackpool council are talking to Blackpool about gifting or providing land for a training facility. Um, let's just say we didn't have the same cooperation. Okay.
2: No, that's fine. Do you have a message for the, I suppose, cause obviously the it was fans who, lobby, you know, lobbied Preston Council to obviously get the planning com- commission to change its mind and obviously to, you know, overturn the original decision. I suppose, have you got a message for those fans that are still frustrated about not getting into Ingle, especially after the work that a number of fans did to be able to get the planned decision overturned? And I suppose, what would your message be to those fans at this moment in time?
1: Look, our supporters were magnificent at the time, and I believe our supporters are magnificent. And I understand that sitting where I am, it's a bit embarrassing to sit there and say, you did all that for us, and we've actually gone somewhere else. Um, All I can say is at the time they did it, we genuinely believed that we were going to build Ingle and move into Ingle. And circumstances have dictated that hasn't happened. So, you know, we really appreciate what they did. We genuinely wanted their support. Uh, we genuinely appreciate the sport. And, by the way, we were going to move to Ingle. And I'm not saying that still won't happen strategically because, you know, in any business and certainly in football, another five or six years is real long range planning. And by the way, the club bought that land that yeah. is designated for the training round um, and is now an asset within the football club. Yeah. Um, so uh, what we've done opportunistically is to acquire a magnificent facility. Um, at a very cheap price that none of us believed was going to be available. I think it's the right thing to do. I know it's the right thing to do. Why? Because we're going to be in it in the next three or four weeks. Yeah. Um, so we've delivered. Um, the trouble with any decision-making process is you take a decision at a moment in time based on the facts you've got available to you. You make public statements at a moment in time on the facts that are available to you. If you then change tack or you change your mind or circumstances are different, people then say, oh, you didn't say that three or four years ago. But they forget that when you say something, you say it with the best knowledge of the facts at the time. Um, So, yeah, things have changed. Things have moved. We've delivered on a training facility. But if you'd have asked me that at the time we went for Planet Engle, I didn't think it was possible somewhere else. But it's become available somewhere else. And we've acted swiftly within a two-week time frame, we've paid for it, no debt on it, it's been paid fully, and it's ours. So, look, um, uh, I know supporters are sceptical and they say, oh, you never intended this. That's not true. It was genuinely, 100% intended, but circumstances have dictated we have taken a different tack and strategically, who knows what happened? Yeah.
2: And does Exeter sit on our balance sheet then? So is it Exeter yeah. a, a club? Yeah, it's a club asset, yeah.
0: What's the plan with Ingle then, moving forward, or is it just a case of see where no, we go? Like you said, it's, a, it's an asset for the club, isn't it? So is it just keep it at that and?
1: Look, until yeah. two weeks ago, I didn't know Exton was going to happen. Um, you're now asking me two days after it has happened what the future Ingle is, so and the answer is I have no <laughs> idea. All I can tell you is it's an Ingle, the 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 land Ingle is a club asset. It's on our balance sheet. We bought it. Um, uh, there are no short term plans for it we haven 't discussed it literally we 've had exton for two two days. Um, I worked against the clock to hit a time frame that the uh, administrator gave us to get it bought, which we did and delivered um, i 've been backwards and forwards between exton and, and Deep De all week um, talking about all sorts of different things, including how we get that up to speed um, Once we stop for long enough to take breath we 'll have a think about what happens but on a list of 10 things I need to do between now and the season starting it isn't on the top 10 list
2: Fair enough that's understandable
0: Yeah, so I suppose my next question is, what what are the what are the plans for the club sort of like post Trevor? Because obviously he's not going to be around forever, or if he decides to step away. Um is that one of the things that Craig's been brought in to sort of continue?
1: Well, um, Mr. Hemmings is somebody that as I've got to know him, is one of the most um forward thinking people I've ever met. And his plans for the future are um I don't know what his plan for empire as a whole. Um, But when Craig was appointed chairman a year ago, Mr Elling said, look, what I don't want is any of our supporters thinking if I'm not here, the club's got a problem. Um, And in some cases, you've got football clubs out there who I know if the current owner, for some reason, wasn't there tomorrow, they're they're bust. So Craig's appointment was to reassure our supporters of the family's ongoing commitment uh, to carry on with Preston North End. And if that were to change in the future, and who knows, it may well, it would be on a planned basis, not on a need-to basis. So, look, I've no idea what's going to happen to the club in the future. All I can tell you is it's currently in very good hands with Mr Hemings, as good as anybody in football. It will be in good hands if anything happens to him, because his family have given that commitment. And at some point in time, it might be in somebody else's hands. But if it, if it is in somebody else's hands, it will be on a considered, planned basis, not because there's a crisis.
2: Yeah. Just on that. So, obviously, we're, we're heavily reliant on on Trevor at the moment as a club. And I don't think any fan is not grateful for the support that he's given us over the past 10 years since he took charge. I think well, it's just over 10 years now, isn't it? It's June 2010 he, he, he took over the club. How can we become less reliant on Trevor's investments because, and become more self-sufficient as a football club? And I suppose is the only way of doing that, becoming a Premier League club, do you feel?
1: Well, not not necessarily. Look, I said a few minutes ago when we talked about the football pyramid and financial distributions. And one of the problems we've got as a club, as I've, again, I've already alluded to, is the fact we've got probably the second or third lowest income in the championship. Yeah. However... If football were to address what I believe it needs to address, which is a smoother transition of monies from the Premier League through the pyramid, we could very quickly be self-sufficient and therefore not reliant on uh, an owner who's prepared to put in millions of pounds every year. Um, At Cardiff, we had no uh, benefactor. Um, So what I did every year to to stay alive, because my job there was stop it going bust, build a stadium and sell it, we sold £31 million of players in five years and spent £7 million. And in the meantime, we got to an FA Cup final a player final and built a stadium. So you can do it by smart trading. It's difficult, but you can. Um, uh, but the way in which we're run, to be honest, um, uh, is not, versus some clubs, a massive need to inject cash if you also trade. Um, I think we're very well placed. Um, and i 't I think would be attractive to a new owner because unlike some that are putting in forty million a year um, in ordinary years when you don 't have covid' we'll put mr Emmys is putting a number that could be managed by trading or could be managed by another owner um, and that 's one of our fans' uh, sort of criticisms if you like, because we don 't go out and spend crazy money on players. Um, they think there's something wrong with us, but actually, it's the best way of making sure we're in good financial health going forward. Um, and it is a balance. You know, people say spend, 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 and then when you go bust, they criticise you for spending.
2: Yeah, I think on, on that because I think it's five point six million. I think was the cash flow deficit in the accounts from the 18-19 season. So, and it does say in there that
1: hopefully that'll cover.
2: Yeah, of course. Obviously, it's COVID this year. And I think because it says in the accounts, it's usually covered by an FA Cup run or player trading to be able to cover that. So we're not heavily reliant on on Trevor's money. Obviously, I've seen that he's put quite a lot of money in this year. I think it's just over £6 million in share issues, you know, well, which is pure cash into is, the club.
1: Look, to make sure it's not debt, and, again, and what he does is he converts the money he puts in into, into equity. Yeah. Um, um, and it depends. If you take the last three or four years, it's very difficult to see a trend because I think it's just over two years ago we made a profit because we sold John Hugel and Greg Cunningham in the same season. Then we happened to have a year when there were no sales, but there were purchases. Then we had a year just finished where we sold Callum Robinson. So you have to take it over a three or four year cycle. But the fact of the matter is, um, ordinarily, Mr. Owens has to put in millions of pounds. Sometimes it's... Five or six this year. It will be in excess of ten because of COVID. Um, by trading, we can lessen that, and that depends on whether we invest. But there are clubs out there putting 14, 15 millions of yeah. pounds a year. Um, uh, as I've already explained, there is a model where you could trade and trade and be self-sufficient. Um, be easier if we got bigger sponsorship numbers, and it would be easier if we got bigger crowds. Um, uh, but it and I also think football needs to sort itself out with the financial distribution. So there's all sorts of things that will help us. But as a club, we're in great shape. We're in good hands. We're in good hands with Mister Evans and his family. And the future is will be planned. It won't be um, a sudden uh, crikey we've got crisis.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. No good. Just on I suppose trading and contracts. I think that's probably our next topic, isn't it, Jay? Yeah. Loan market was probably my first question. I think, I think since Alex Neal has been here, we've only made four loan signings, and I think we've made that pretty much every year under, under Simon Grayston. Um, I suppose for you, is there any particular reason why we're not successful in terms of tapping into that market for the past two or three seasons?
1: Um, it's a market that can work, as it did with Jermaine Beckford, and it's a market that can be a disaster. Um, you know, we only had one last season. I think that didn't work. we changed it at Christmas time. Um, what's changed, which I think is very disappointing, is that Premier League clubs who want their players to play games, instead of actually giving you the player on the cheap and saying as long as he plays, it's, a, it's not a problem, they now charge loan fees. They often want the whole of the salary recovery. They often write in that they have to start every week, irrespective of whether they're playing well or not. I don't think it's right. Um, You know, a player should be picked because they're good enough, not because the contract says they have to be picked. And for a Premier League club to have a player that's not going to get into their team, who want them to play football, but then charge you a loan fee, and these could be millions of pounds loan fee, Mm -hmm. it's better to secure the player for yourself because, you know, Rian Brewster we looked at at Christmas. Uh, Alex and I met him and his mum. The terms of that loan fee to us, were onerous because there was a, a loan fee and his wages were high by our comparison. But then in the summer, he was going to go back to Liverpool. So all we were doing is making somebody better for somebody else. At least if you sign your own players, um, you've got a chance that they want to play for you and stay with you and be part of your future success. So it's not, we won't do it. We will, if we have to do it, Um but you can often lose out. Look at Jordan Pickford. You know Jordan Pickford was was with us. We wanted him as a season-long loan. Sam Allardyce got the job at Sunderland, came to watch us play. Said he was outstanding. First thing he did was recall him. Left us in the lurch. So um, loans are an interesting part of the transfer market. The Premier League clubs have made them less attractive, uh, disappointingly, in my view. Um, but if we have to, we will. But I prefer to get our own if we can. And I suppose
2: in terms of recruitment this summer, um, I know you obviously mentioned yesterday have we've been knocked back a couple of times so far, and I suppose we're knocking on the door of as many as we can. I suppose can you give a bit of a an overall consensus as to where we're at recruitment for, for this season at this moment in time?
1: Well, the the primary focus is on a striker. I mean nobody would be surprised about that. We think we're in good shape in most of the positions. Um Finding a 20-goal-a-season striker for not a lot of money is difficult.
2: Impossible, um, I'd say, Peter, to be honest.
1: Well, we say impossible, but we did it with Jermaine Beckford, who did almost single-handed, not quite, but, you know, his goals contributed to us getting promoted. Um, when Joe Garner decided he wanted to go to Rangers, we thought, crikey, all we've got left is John Hugel. And he, he turned out to be a superstar in terms of a £25,000 investment and what we got back for him. So, look, it's not impossible, um, but it is something that everybody else wants. Um, and um, we have made uh, bids um, for players. Um, The bids themselves weren't rejected. The players decided for whatever reason they wanted to go somewhere else, or in the end it just didn't work out. Um, We'll continue to do what we think we do well, and that's get value for money and the right people if we can. Um, Howard Wilkinson told me a long time ago, if you get three out of five right, you're doing a very good job, and that's when I was competing in the market with known players, yeah. uh, with players who excelled already in the Premier League. When you do it with players who are a gamble, I think if you get two out of five right, you're doing a good job. And instead of people therefore saying, oh, you know, you didn't give him a chance or whatever, if you get it wrong, it's a bit like some of the decisions we've taken, we talked earlier, if you get it wrong, hold your hands up, make a change and get the next one in. Yeah. And if you actually look at the players we brought in and the prices we paid, I think we've done a very good job in recruitment in terms of value for money.
0: Just just on that, I think that was quite evident that we're referring to David Nugent there. There's been a lot of talk that it was a, a signing that was made above the manager's head, if you will, sort of one that Trevor went out and, and did, maybe not by himself, but he was the sort of the, the person behind it. Is that the case? And, and if so, why?
1: look, When you say above the manager's head, the reality is that no individual is solely responsible for every signing. Um, And therefore, sometimes I'll find a player and recommend him to the manager who says yes or no. Sometimes the the owner will see a player and recommend him and say yes or no. And the owner signs off on every signing. Um, So where any individual signing originated from is almost irrelevant because it's a team. We're all in it together. Um, and you know, some work, some don't. Uh, so, I think it's wrong to suggest it's over the manager's head or anything else. You know, um, the manager is a part of a team, um, and all those that were successful, I've got about five people claim they found them first, and all those that weren't successful, everybody claims it was nothing to do with them. Um, so, the reality is that we all buy into the signings. Since um, some work and some don't, yeah. and it's the owner's football club, and he signs off on everyone. Um, so, have we got some wrong, or have some not worked out as well as others? Of course, that's football. Um, when when I was in the Premier League, we got some right and some wrong. Yeah. Um, it's harder when you're spending less money. So, I think for people to start saying, was it over his head, or was he involved, or whatever? All I can guarantee you is every successful signing, at least five people found them first. And nobody wants to know about ones that haven't
2: worked. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, overseas recruitment, Peter. Um, we've not signed a player from outside the UK and Ireland since 2011. Um, are, are we, is there anything that prohibits us from signing a player from Europe or overseas at all or anything that doesn't allow us to tap into a market, especially when there's a lot of championship clubs at this moment in time that are Looking to the Netherlands, to Belgium, to other places for for talent because I suppose there is a bit of an English premium from, from buying from the likes of League One and League Two at this moment in time. You only have to look at Ivan Tony going for ten million pound for a League One striker um, to, to see that. I suppose can we do we have the ability to to recruit from Europe at all?
1: Well, we have the ability, but telling you what, I find is a challenge. And look, I was at Leeds for sixteen years and. In the main, we went for British players, Irish players, or what I call like-minded players, so Australians and Scandinavians. Um, first of all, if you're not at the top flight, so you're not in the Premier League, you're right at the top where you're signing internationally known players, to go to somewhere overseas and guess what the quality of the league is, who the player is, the club, the competition, and will they fit in the Championship is tough. Um, so while we can get somebody in a market here that we know the quality standard they've been playing in, you know, we've got overseas players, You know, we've got Patrick Bauer who's German, but he was already in this country, we knew the level he was playing at. Um, uh, we prefer, because it is tough, to get a player that we know the quality standard they're playing in, so it's not that can't be foreign players, it's we prefer to get them from a league that we understand how good that league is, if we find somebody, uh, and in fact one of the players that we've been turned down on only in the last couple of days, who was a striker, we obviously got right because that club's offered him a new four-year deal not to come to us. Um, so we've looked overseas. Our preferred solution is in the UK or if we can, um, but it, there's nothing that says we can't. I also find, and it's difficult now because people will have a go at me, but at the lower levels, I'm not convinced people come in and use as anything other than a stepping stone. They want to come here to prove they can cut it in English football and then as soon as they can, they'll try and move up the leagues or up to a bigger club. Um, I think the loyalty factor, if you find somebody League 1, League 2, discarded maybe by a Premier League club, I think the loyalty factor is greater. And I think that that provides stability and we as a club pride ourselves on stability.
0: So in terms of, obviously you've said that we'd, we'd like to obviously keep what we've got. I think you mentioned with Radio Lancashire yesterday that there's two or three that are as good as signed. They're just, for whatever reason, haven't been finalised or announced yet. Um, I don't know who coined this phrase initially, but the the big four, where are we up to with them? Uh, obviously, Daniel Johnson, Ben Pearson, Ben Davis and Alan
1: Brown. Well, they probably coined it, I would think. <laughs> 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 um Look, we've got A lot of contracts to do. Um, I'm doing them in an order for a particular reason. Partly because some players might want to see what there is out there and see whether it really is greener grass greener somewhere else um, before they decide whether they're going to sign what we're offering. All I can tell you in my experience is it's been a rarity when people have decided they want to play somewhere else. Um, there's the odd player who wants to go and play in the Premier League and we've let them go not sure their Premier League uh, careers to date have embarrassed us um, but we've not stood in their way but do we want to keep the quality players we've got of course we do um, and if we can't we'll have to replace them with people who will do the same job so succession planning is a critical part of what we're doing but do I want to get all the players we've currently got tied down for longer contracts absolutely that's the number one priority. Will I succeed? Time will tell. Nobody's saying they don't like being oppressed or North End football.
0: In terms of confidence then with them four, are you confident on any of them?
1: Well, my starting point is I'm confident on all of them, but time will tell if that's misplaced confidence. Or not. <laughs> um, none of them are saying they want to leave. Yeah. Um, everybody wants more money than we're currently paying. Um, whatever job they're in, whether it's somebody cleaning the stadium or somebody who's anchoring midfield. Um, ultimately, there'll be a number that we'll either meet or we won't meet um, and time will tell. The great thing about the football club is, and this again comes back to Mr. Hemmings and his ownership model, which the fans don't appreciate. We're not a club that is desperately sitting there waiting for offers to come in to survive. Some clubs I know, sitting there saying, if an offer doesn't come in for two players this summer, we are bust. We're sitting here saying, if the right offer comes in at the right price and the player wants to go, and they're further in their career, we don't stand in their way. And we say, thank you for the job done. Um, but we can equally say, if an offer comes in at the wrong price, we say, sorry, we're not going to take them money. And that's a very strong position to be in. Um, I think we've got a great team spirit. We've got a great team spirit because our pay structure is... There's not wildly different between the highest and lowest paid. And I think that helps engender team spirit. Um, As we've found players and we've progressed and they progress, obviously it's become harder to perhaps satisfy everybody's needs. Um, But my job is to get as many of them signed up as possible. And that's my number one priority.
2: Should we lose any of the big four, as they've coined it, Peter? Are we in a position where we are able to to recruit and to re- replace? Should we get the the right transfer fee for those players?
1: Without naming who they are, and you you've coined them, I haven't. Um, were any of them to leave, dependent on who they were, it would determine whether or not we need to replace them. Because the one thing we've done very well, in my opinion, is put a squad together where we've got real competition for places. Um. We haven't got a -a 20-goal-a-season striker, so we're unlikely to lose one. So if we lost a -a 20-goal-a-season striker, it would be hard to replace. What we've got is some very good players in other positions who were we to lose them, we may well already have interesting replacements internally, or we might have to replace them. I don't think we're sitting here, however much people love those players, I don't think we're sitting here thinking if any one or more of them went the team will fall apart because actually I think our recruitment has been very good and we've got real strong competition for places in almost every position, bar probably the striking position.
0: Have we had any interest in any of them?
1: Um, none that I would think is worrying.
0: Right, fair enough. <laughs> so one one from me, what, what are your plans for the club moving forward? I know it's hard to sort of say, but in terms of if if you were... In, in a dream scenario? Like, what what, what what, are your plans for taking the club forward?
1: Well, look, it's not my plans. I'm an employee and uh, I work for Mr Hemmings and I've enjoyed every minute of working from, or almost every minute. <laughs> there's the other case. The not other from them
0: early morning wake-up calls.
1: There's <laughs> the other case when he lets me know what he thinks about me. But, um, look, he's been a joy to work for and it's his football club, it's his family's investment And for as long as they want me to do what I'm doing, I will carry on doing it. Um, What would I really like to do before I go is I'd like Preston North End to be in the Premier League.
0: My next one, then, is have you had any regrets from your time at the club?
1: Um, Look, I've made loads of mistakes in my life, both in personal and business life. Um, If I lived on regrets, you'd really have a... be beating yourself up all the time. Um, uh, I've no regrets... I've loved every minute. I've made some mistakes. We've done a lot of more things right than people give us credit for. And it's hard work. And we work, I think, harder and smarter than most. Um, so my time at Preston North End, as I say, has just been a joy, a privilege. I love working for the boss. Um, I love the football club. I think it's got tremendous history, heritage. And I think it's, the supporters deserve Premier League football. So I'm not looking backwards with regret. I'm looking forward to, with opportunity and hope and expectation. And the day we deliver Premier League football will be the day, I say to the supporters, it wasn't so bad after all, was it? And maybe that's the time I just say au revoir. Fair
0: enough. Last one from me then. What, what's, what's your personal highlight from your time at the club so
1: far? Um, the final whistle on the 24th of May 2015.
2: How did it feel that, like, Peter? Because obviously, you know, getting us back to where I suppose we belong, so, so to speak, you know, and the job, especially after the disappointment of, of Colchester as well. I suppose, how did that feel for you as, I suppose, from your position?
1: Well, the, the, the gap between the Colchester game and the player final was horrible. I think um, everybody's, um, I think the tensions inside the club were terrible. Um, and I think that we deserved to get promoted that year. And then everybody kept reminding me that we're not used to winning player finals, which was horrible. And then they reminded me I'd only ever been in two player finals, one with Leeds, which was the very first one ever in 87, which we lost ultimately on the third game. And the other one was with Cardiff City against Blackpool in 2010. So my track record in player finals wasn't very good either, um, which is probably why it's the most satisfying part of, of my time with, with Preston North End. There's loads of satisfying times in terms of some of the players recruited. When I look at the squad, I'm very proud of the squad we've put together and my part in doing that. And it is a team effort. Um, I think we've got some great players that, you know, a lot of people turn and say, crikey, how did you do that? But the one highlight has got to be that day at Wembley. And it wasn't the fourth goal going in. It was the final whistle Because um, we played when I was at Cardiff, a game at Peterborough uh 28th of December in 2009 4-0 up at half time and all my colleagues were in the boardroom glad handing each other and I said listen I've been in football too long it's half time we ended up drawing 4-0 and um even at 4-0 at Wembley I, I couldn't relax so it was special
0: yeah I think unless you've got anything else you want to add Jimmy I think we can wrap that up
2: no just thank you very much for your time Peter and um Best of luck to you and all the guys at North End for the season, and you know hopefully we can um, we can get you on later on in the season as well.
1: Well, look, I'd like to thank you for giving me the time and the opportunity, and uh, I try always with all our supporters to be frank, honest, and say as I see it. Uh, the way I see it may not be how others see it, but I just say it as I see it, and uh, I'd like to really thank you both for your time. Yeah, no,
0: thank uh-huh. you very much, Peter. I really appreciate it. Um, okay. I've no doubt I'll nag you more towards the end of the season about another uh-huh. appearance. All right. Cheers. Thank you very much, Peter.
2: Take care. Thanks,
0: Peter. See you later.
1: Bye.